Hello, I'm one of your hosts, Natalia Pinzon Jimenez, and welcome to Farmers Build Fire Resilience, a special podcast series brought to you by the Farmer Campus, the Community Alliance with Family Farms, and the Farmers Guild. In this series, you'll travel with us to the fields and back in order to hear stories from farmers, ranchers, and community members impacted by increasingly devastating wildfires in the Western United States. We hope these stories of loss, rebuilding, and resilience will help us face a future with fire together. Today, on episode six, we hear from Lori and Jim Noble, whose family has been farming apples in Paradise County, California, for nearly 100 years. We hear how they survived the deadliest and most destructive wildfire in California history, the 2018 Campfire. I'm Jim Noble. I raise apples. I'm Lori Noble. Been here at the farm now for about 18 years. Prior to that, I was doing other things, and I've known him for 40 years. But I'm on the board of directors of Butte County Farm Bureau. And this is your family farm. This is our family farm. It started by my, my grandparents came up here in 1921 and purchased the property. Had their first. They were given the first crop that year. My grandfather was just raising apples, basically. They had started pears and paradise at one time, but pear decline hit. It's probably also fire blight was a problem. They didn't know how to handle it. Pear trees started dying, so they started plant, people started planting apple trees. And apple trees did pretty good up here. So tell me about the property here. You talk about the elevation. How do you we're, describe where you are? Well, we're in the Sierra Nevada foothills. It's just about 2,300 foot elevation. You're, you know, generally below the snow line. And I understand there used to be a lot of apple orchards in, in this. <clears throat> there were a lot of people grazing apples. There was a few people large enough to put their own packing house in. That was like my grandfather and uh, and uh, Charlie Nielsen. Excuse me, Charlie Nielsen. He had a, a packing house, and then there's uh, a bunch of small growers, smaller growers. My grandfather had about fifty acres at one time. Why did you pick this spot? Uh, he picked this spot because it was available. <laughs> There's a little more to it he, than that. They, they traveled around looking for a property to purchase. Paradise Irrigation District started in 1916. So there was the promise of a steady supply of water for agriculture. And I think that made a huge that's, difference. That's a big, that's a quite important point, yes. So historically, um, prior to that, it was wherever you get water, however you could get it. So the assurance of solid water is good. So before the fire, how many people worked here in the orchard and what kind of markets were you able to serve? Well, we were, uh, we, at one time we were a wholesaler, but you eventually got squeezed out by Washington State and imports from you know Australia, New Zealand, South America. So we became more of a direct marketer. With uh, the fruit stand here, we, we have people coming in seven days a week. But acreage, you know, you started getting smaller acreage. You converted things. And so we're going to be about down to about 12 acres apples in the future and uh, try to, you know, put some new trees in the ground and uh, upscale, the, upscale the varieties a bit. We, we definitely have a corner on the market at this point in time. There's a possibility with this fire that somebody else may put in apples in, or decide that some of the land could be used for agriculture. And I think that would be delightful. I think it's a testament to agriculture 
that the orchard did not burn and we have trees that are producing this year. Uh, they haven't been cared for, so they're small fruits. Too many of them on a tree have been breaking branches and so on. But just the fact that it did not burn and we're sitting in a wooded area that burned probably at 2,000 degrees and these trees are all going to be removed. Um, there are a few that are still alive, but if you look, uh, you know, they may have burned two-thirds of the way up a 150-foot tree. They're not going to be growing. They're dying. Uh, but is there value in those logs? The market saturated. The market saturated. The quality of the, of the timber is deteriorating as we speak because it starts to turn blue. And the logger will take out what he can do something with or the mill will accept one way or another. Between the fires that have happened just in Northern California in the past year, two years, um, logs are more than abundant. Uh, the car fire in Redding produced some logs. This event at this point in time is over 600,000 dead and dying trees. That was a count that was done in January. We know just by looking at a tree that has leafed out and now is brown, that was green probably in, in March after it leafed out and uh, has since died. So now that total may be upwards of a million trees. And that's a huge quantity. Of course, the oak is not desirable for, for a wood operation as much as, as fir. And we don't have very much fur on the property. So so tell me about the fire. Paint a picture for people who weren't in it. Well, when it was time to go, there there were flames shooting up about 100 feet in the air, here and there. And you knew, stuck around, it was not going to be good. I'd paint the picture starting with earlier in the morning. We were up very early because we were headed to pick up a forklift from a neighboring farmer, a Christmas tree farm three quarters of a mile down the road, and I was going to pick up mandarins in Orville from a mandarin grower. So we were up early. Jim was feeding cats. He saw, saw smoke the, coming. I saw the brown sky and wondered, why is it brown? Because that's not a storm. And as I walked around, I saw the uh, the black column coming straight up, shooting just straight up. One of this big column just went straight up in the air, a couple hundred feet. It had to be 20 miles away. I go, well, that's a fire. That's too bad. We don't need to worry about it. Yeah. Initially. So we proceeded to go down and pick up equipment. And when we got there, the folks, the owners, uh, one was a retired fireman and the other one was very involved in the North Valley Animal Disaster Assistance Program. Um, and there were radios and phones in both ears. And we went, proceeded to go down with Joe to pick up the forklift. And we got down there and I picked up a piece of an ember and I said, we got a problem. And kind of a gruff voice said, oh, don't worry about it. And I think Let's it was go. three nanoseconds later, if not two, he said, call Ann. So Ann went running over to the canyon. Their house is much closer to the canyon than we are. And um, she came back screaming bloody murder, called back that there, was, there were flames in the canyon already. And that was about, we believe, 7.15. We've kind of lost track of some of those time factors yeah, but as we as we left their property we were headed northbound and i said pull that forklift over there's something burning in our orchard i could see a column of of light colored smoke so we we got back out on pence road and managed to get up here people were still letting off their children at the at ponderosa school which is south of us about a half a mile so we we're about, and about a mile down the road we were and this is driving the forklift up you see this big brown smoke blowing straight across once in a while you see a, a black wisp or something 
like it like it caught a bush or something. And you go, this is not good at all. Parked the fourth the first spot I could park off the road and we got together and came back. Continue. So we got up here and, and Jim hopped in the orange Jeep, a forty six Jeep, and headed out in the orchard to go see what he could do about the fire out there. We thought it was a normal fire with a spot fire, get that out and you'll be fine. And I started loading vehicles with dogs, get the muzzle on them, get them in their crates, get them in the truck, um, and grabbed a few things, had put a few things in the the vehicles we were going to take and multiple vehicles we were going to take. Um, part of the problem with the, the evacuation was everybody tried to get out with their vehicles. So there were multiple, um, could have been four instead of two or one. Everybody in one car. Yeah. So, so there are going to be a lot of changes, I think, advised in the future for something like this. I'm now on the Butte County Fire Safe Council, and a lot of the discussions are, are going around about you're evacuating multiple thousands of people off of a mountain area. You've got to clear the valley so there's some place for them to go. So they would they will do things differently in Chico on 99, <laughs> on 70, because there was no place for people to go. And that congested how fast people could get off the mountain here. Uh, plus, there was there was a firestorm in the whole place. We had no idea, being on the eastern edge, that the town had already burned was burning at eight o'clock in the morning. We thought we were the fire. Yeah, we thought we were the the brunt of the fire coming this way. But I was going off everywhere. So they have normal evacuation zones. But with this happening, they told everybody to get out now. And that's why all the roads got jammed up. People have, we, we need to work on what a reaction is uh, to events. I know that, I believe it's the American Red Cross has started a program where if all you know about first aid is put pressure on it, you need to know what to do if you are in an open shooting incident. And in the case of a fire, I think the answer is probably y'all pile into one car and get, forget about the stuff. And that's a hard thing for us as a people to accept. But I want my everything. I want my favorite jewelry. Um, we, we are going to have to change our ways because this is probably not the only place this is going to happen. The uh, comments that the wind was very heavy is all true. Um, it was 60, 70 mile an hour winds. Um, we were in an area with about 300, I was in an area with about 300 people and helicopters were coming over. I was feeling water droplets. So the air was cool there, uh, even though it was a hot fire. And people were not dressed for same. I remember I've got a picture of one lady who was had a robe on and next to nothing else at 80-something. And I know she was freezing. The winds here, um, there are different records, but they've got a lot of, of instrumentation that was measuring things. And they're collating that information. And it was strong winds. Um, the topography here impacted what burned and what didn't. Why there's a house behind us standing with the trees unburned, can't tell you. Yeah. Obviously, it burned around the trees. You see black going up part of them, but the house didn't didn't take. Uh, a, the gravel. There was a structure between, right straight ahead between those two burnt trees or beyond those. They that, that structure burned, but the other houses were just fine. You um, see this throughout town. There's it, a house, some houses here, some houses there. And who knows? One of the things that 
is definitely going to be the new new paradise, the new California, hopefully, is hardscaping a house, that there's no vegetation around the house. There's concrete, there's there's gravel, there's rock, there's whatever, but no, no vegetative debris that could catch fire. Um, fences that go up to a house, if it's wood, uh, can catch the eaves, and then there goes the whole house. So you'll see even in town, somehow some fences have been replaced and they're wood right up to the structure. Uh, the ideal and new code is going to be a clear area of either rock, stone, something, gate maybe. And then if you want a wood fence, it can be a wood fence, but not right under the house. So there are just a lot of things that could, should save. And we hope we never know whether it works or not, because if we don't have another fire, that would be the ideal. But um, we do some things that are kind of crazy. This property had a lot of stacks of this and that. And um, we weren't surprised that we had things burn. And a fireman would tell you, you know, if there's debris around, I'm not going. I'm putting myself in jeopardy. I'm going to go where I, I can be effective and save the house. And so the the cleanliness around the house and under eaves and so on is really, really critical. Tell me about the days after the fire and what it's been like since then. Well, we had got separated. So I ended up in Orville. Then I went to, well, let's see, went to Gridley looking for her because there's a shelter there. And so I finally got in touch with her and uh, tried to get back to Chico to, to pick her up. But the highway was closed at that time. The fire had burned to 99. They had closed that night. it. At, I came up from Gridley and they closed the, 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 uh, at, from Orville to Chico. So I went around there. I didn't see their closure at all. And I got stopped and highway patrolman says, What are you doing on the road? Going to Chico to pick up my wife. Well, you can't. You got to go back. So I went back to Orville, got her, went to Orville, called her, and then I spent the night with, we have, with friends of ours in Orville. Then I got in touch with her. So I got to Chico by going around. We got he, back together. The road was still closed at that point, 99, and yeah. he had to go out west into the valley to get around uh, the closure. And we got back together and headed off to Oroville, where our friend, where the mandarin grower was, who had collected all kinds of people from Ch Ch or Paradise oh, in their cool. home. And uh, then we went forth. That was Friday. I think we just stood around sort of numb that day. And the following day, we, we went searching for our dogs. Um, our dogs were in the back of a pickup that one of our neighbors came walking out from the orchard. He had a home on the canyon, a retired physician. And he walked out, and he was in shock. He appeared in shock to me. And he said, I just thought I'd come and see if I could help you with your vehicles. My house burned. The second he said that, I went running in the house, grabbed the keys, said, if you'd like to take this vehicle, that it would be fine. I inquired where his wife was. I didn't really get a clear answer, but she had already gone with a vehicle, apparently. So he was hoofing it. So we decided we'd meet again at that CMA church, which is kind of the central meeting ground. And that didn't happen. He was told to evacuate the vehicle, run for his life. He was sheltered in place in another area. And one of the dogs was released from her crate, the German Shepherd. The Rottweiler Sharpe Cross is more of a bully dog, and he did have a muzzle on when he was put in the carrier. So he was grabbed, carrier and all, and thrown in somebody's truck by a highway patrolman and told to take him to Chico. 
and we got the dogs back on Saturday. So that was very nice. You found one of the Humane Society in Chico. How long did you stay with friends? Oh, we um, I spent one night with our friends. Lori and I got back together, and the neighbor there came up and says, well, I have this fifth wheel. Do you have anybody who can use it? And my friend Lori says, yeah, they, they can't. And we stayed this fifth wheel for about six and a half months on his property. Kindest gentleman in the world. I don't want any rent. He says, people helped me in the past. I'm going to help you guys. Just help somebody in the future when they need. Yeah. I spent a lot of time working on repairing drip line because even though the orchard didn't burn, it sort of smoldered and moved along or a little fire would have caught here and there from the embers. And there's little sections of drip line melted. Other sections just fine. So I'm either repairing or replacing drip line for a while just to keep the get just get the orchard irrigated so the trees would survive. We, prior to the fire, we had 11, 12 employees. Many of them were part-time. I think we had one full-time employee only. And now we're kind of relying on volunteers. I don't have my volunteer signs up yet, but we really do uh, need volunteers. And everybody is so willing to help. Um, we, will, we will get some helpers to help put up the bear fence. There's about with about 150 feet that has to be replaced or put back up. And the rest of it, the hard wiring is, is still intact. The insulators that hold up the electricity part are plastic, so they melted in many areas. A lot of places they've melted completely. Has been absolutely essential. If this property had not been cleaned by somebody else and, and trucks hauling hundreds of tons of stuff, I don't know what they took off of here, but there must have been 70 truckloads, if not more. Um, because we had large buildings that had heavy cement pours and so on, concrete was removed, all the steel. Um, I'm looking at a, a um, sink over there, a three-compartment sink, which is a commercial kitchen sink, uh, but it's stainless steel. And when the guy said, you want to pull that out? That's stainless is worth a lot. We don't want to throw it in the landfill. Um, recycle it. So we've got some collectibles around um, that need to get to recycling. But we came up looking at this mess and just said, where do you start? What do you, is there anything worth pulling out? We looked around for a few things. We found some trinkets. We've got, we've got obviously more collectibles than we probably needed to keep, but there's, it all is going to tie into the history. And we had somebody come up from the Butte County Historical Society down in Orville. And she said, well, are you saving anything that has to do with the fire itself? And I thought, oh, my goodness. No, we're focused on what had to do with an apple orchard. What had to do with the fire? Oh, that 50-foot piece of tin that was on the, the crown of a big building was curled like this from the fire. There probably was a tornado going through here, the fire nados. Fire nado, there had to be, there had to be a couple of them up here at least, because the way that everything was shifted around here, and one place you could see the uh, coating oxidized on one spot, but was still there. Another spot, it was so black the zinc had all been burned off within hundred foot section, distant, and then like big old giant sequoia is about 75 feet away from everything else. One of the things I said to somebody in the past couple of days is trees in paradise are similar to sand on beaches in Miami, the Carolina coasts, barrier islands, and so on. Commerce will not 
continue until the trees are removed for this area. Commerce in a high-rise uh, hotel along the beach is not going to continue until there's sand on the beach. And they're both critical pieces and we're having difficulty, one, with who can take down the trees. There are not a lot of trained lumbermen still in the world we live in. It's become a piece that we don't do. So there are our training programs that some of the junior colleges are picking up to get people into the trade quickly. But quickly is not fast enough when you're trying to get the property cleared so that you can continue on with a business. The number of loggers in this area are very limited. And we had a tree company come and take three trees that were, they were under contract with PG&E to remove some trees. They were from Long Island. Yes, that's New York. They had driven across country five days when they got to Utah with the hills, some of their equipment broke down because that was basically on the East Coast where it's fairly flat uh, terrain. And in the next breath, just about the gentleman I was talking to said, and we may be called to Florida at the end of this week. And that was just prior to the hurricane um, arriving in, on the East Coast last week. I don't know where they are now, but they, uh, we haven't seen them around. So green velvet is gone. Uh, what a travel to come just to work for a week or two and be called elsewhere. We had on this piece three parcels. So each parcel got cleaned up separately. And once in a while you find a bottleneck. Well, we're, we're going to come in here and clean up tomorrow. Well, next thing you know, well, there's some asbestos here. Well, that's got to be cleaned up and cleared before they can come in here and haul this off or that off. And it just, you sit there and you wait and you wait and you wait. Then it happens. Then you wait to get your clearance so you can come back on the property or do whatever you want with it. Then they move to the next piece and they do. you go through the same thing. You, know? you learn from the first one, the next one. Okay, this one over here didn't have any asbestos. Uh, within, I believe it was 10 or 11 days after the fire, it started raining. And pretty much it just didn't stop. It was one of those kind of winters that was, was very heavy. And crews would get back up here from wherever in the country they were coming from. And we had people from all over. I didn't see any loggers coming from North Dakota and South Dakota, but there were people here from almost every state helping. And you get the crews back in place and then it'd rain again and they'd all go home. Uh, so it was, it was very complicated through the winter as far as getting started, continuing. And as we moved up here at the end of May, 1st of June, it still was raining, we had hail storms five nights in a row after we got in place in the trailer we're in. Um, and that was June. It's like, okay, here we are. And it's just soggy around. Um, I'm not looking forward to this winter to the extent that we have a lot of bare soil. Um, and there is going to be erosion as soon as this piece that we're sitting on right now has equipment on it running around uh, actually taking the trees down, there will be probably this much powder of soil. And the soil has almost no organic material in it. That's why it's blowing in the wind so easily. Um, we have gathered piles and piles of wood chips, which seems like so many, and yet it's not enough. So, of course, there are going to be chips coming from some of the debris that's here right now. But we will cover the place with chips uh, in an effort to stop most of the erosion um, but it's going to be difficult so there's a lot anywhere close to where we were before we're certainly not looking at building 11 buildings again um, we're going to be able to consolidate the operation and make it more efficient to fit with 2020 
uh, or maybe it's going to be 2021 before it gets back together. That'll be our hundredth year in business. Uh, we will have some celebration of it. Who knows what will be under? It might be a tent still. It takes time to get a house installed. And uh, right now, to get a new house in, you're paying anywhere from $250 to $300 a square foot just because there's not enough builders and every other things. So, no, the quotes actually are now up to $400. Yeah. And that's, it's part of it is that the, the building requirements are going to change. Code is going to change in 2020, 2019. If we can pull permits on a house and a cold storage are going to be different than if we wait until 2020. So there is a drive to be, to move forward quickly. Um, quick and, and moving forward just don't seem to be happening. But I we hope that we'll be able to pull permits before that. It is unknown at this moment what the changes in California code are going to be, but we all know that fire code is going to be much more stringent. Well, thank you so much. Thank yeah. you for talking to us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's all for today's episode of Stories from the Fields. Thank you for listening, and thank you to Lori and Jim Noble for joining us today. Join us again next week when we'll hear from more farmers and ranchers. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so you never miss an episode. Plus, if you haven't enrolled in our online course, Farmers Build Fire Resilience, stop by our website at farmercampus.com and join us.